everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Checked the P.O. box the other day, and friend of the show Tom Russell sent us a copy of the new game he designed, Dinosaur Table Battles. So uh, Lisa and I have been playing some of that. And so I've been thinking about dinosaurs a lot lately, and how much it must suck to get bullied if you're a dinosaur. Because if you're a stegosaurus, and you're hanging out with mean kids, I bet the thing that you hear over and over again is about the fact that you've got a brain the size of a walnut. And that is just hurtful. So if you're a dinosaur and are getting bullied by mean kids, next time they say you've got a brain the size of a walnut, here's what I suggest you retort. Oh yeah? Well you humans have brains the shape of a walnut. How does that feel? Matter of fact, all brains are the shape of a walnut. So you guys just have a less accurate walnut facsimile. Take that. Plus, if any aliens come down and decide that they're going to make brain pesto or space baklava or whatever, whose brain do you think they're going to scoop out first? My walnut-sized walnut brain or your grapefruit-sized walnut brain? And before you point out how unlikely it is that there's a group of space aliens out there somewhere who like to make brain pesto or space baklava, think about the fact that you are having this conversation with a talking stegosaurus. So maybe weird shit happens, okay? And then when they're thinking about that, I don't know, maybe smack them with your spiked tail or something. You're a stegosaurus. Have fun with it. In conclusion, bullying is wrong. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was sent in by Ido Bosnar in a lovely card that he sent me from Croatia. So thank you, Ido. Well, the feds have finally gotten Nighthawk to do the right thing. Now hopefully Starfire will slap some sense into Nightwing. And Doctor Strange just has to be nicer to Wong. Well, Wonder Girl has to do something about Professor Long. Till then I await the day when every Defender is best, and every Titan and Aqualad. No jest. This rhyme is beginning to verbally wander, as a variety of clever couplets I ponder. Maybe I'm just miffed that somebody already used Thanatopsis. So without further ado, everyone enjoy this gripping synopsis. Thanks, Ido. That was rad. Um, before we get into the actual synopsis of this or the conversation afterwards, I do want to have a slight content warning here. The issue that we're talking about today, Defenders number 77, has as a pretty major plot point a very young character who takes his own life. It's not, in a lot of ways, the focus of the issue, and it's not really our focus of the coverage on it, but the topic itself does come up, and it is something that we discuss a little bit. So if that's a topic that's particularly upsetting to you, just be prepared that it is going to come up, both in the synopsis and in our discussion. Okay, so on that cheery note, Defenders, number 77, November 1979. Waiting for the world to end. Written by Stephen Grant with a plot assist by Mark Gruenwald. Drotted by Herb Trimpe. Inkted by Stephen Mitchell and Chick Stone. 
and Al Milgram. Lettered by Joe Rosen. Colored by George Russos. Edited by Al Milgram. And I don't normally credit the editor-in-chief of these, but Jim Shooter is listed as James Shooter here. And I just think that's kind of weird. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Hellcat. The Incredible Hulk. The Wasp. And Moon Dragon. Hooray! So this issue is going to wrap up the storyline of the Omega the Unknown series. So before we do the previously in the Defenders thing, today's guest, Dr. Osvaldo Ayola, has prepared a previously in Omega the Unknown thing for us. So thanks, Osvaldo. Previously in Omega the Unknown. Precocious homeschooled 12-year-old James Michael Starling discovered the hard way that his parents were actually a pair of robots when a car accident in the middle of their move from an isolated house in Pennsylvania mountain country to New York City destroyed them both. Mysteriously unhurt in the accident, James Michael got to see his mom's melting decapitated head before he passed out, warning him that he should not listen to the voices. Good advice for us all. Then, all evidence of his parents' android origins burned away. Waking up in a hospital for special cases, James Michael ended up the ward of a mousy nurse named Ruth Hart and her Spitfire roommate Amber in a roach-infested Hell's Kitchen apartment, but not before he learned he shared some kind of mysterious connection with the newly arrived last survivor of his destroyed homeworld, the Caped Man. The Caped Man, who looked kind of like Black Bolt mated with Superman except in a fresh one-piece royal blue Adidas tracksuit with red piping and a cape that came over his shoulders into buckles that looked like the Greek letter Omega, with another Omega-shaped symbol on his headband like a badass, arrived on Earth from his home planet, where purple killer robots destroyed all his people. At the hospital, the robots came for James Michael, thinking for some unknown reason that he was the caped man. When the wordless alien hero was not up to the task of defeating the robots, the traumatized tween went into a kind of fugue state where his thoughts intermingled with the ever-silent caped man, and gouts of energy exploded from his palms, destroying the robots and leaving the Omega symbols burned into his flesh. Yikes! Over the course of nine more issues, James Michael Starling and the caped man shared in a variety of oddball adventures. Hardly ever speaking word, but hanging out like a neighborhood regular, the caped man had a fraught relationship with his community for refusing to follow typical super-heroic good-guy protocols. Namely, he wanted to get paid. Plus, he bought an expensive three-piece suit and started wearing it over his costume. Driven to know more about his mysterious origins, James Michael ran away with his friend Diane to go back to his family home in Pennsylvania, where he discovered an inert duplicate pair of robot parents hidden behind a secret panel. Unsure what to do about his absence, James Michael Starling's guardian freaked out, while her roommate Amber was certain that being mature for his age, the kid would return. Around this time, Richard Rory, Ruth's ex-boyfriend and buddy-to-man-thing, showed up in town after a stint in jail looking to mooch a place to live. Meanwhile, the caped man flew to Las Vegas with his septuagenarian buddy Gramps. He used his superpowers to fix games and win lots of money to set up a trust fund for James Michael Starling. When the usually gumball machine polymorphic supercomputer-headed Ruby Thursday showed up, and with the aid of a big purple demon-looking guy named Dibbick, stole all of his money, the caped man went on a rampage in an effort to track her down. Unfortunately for him, when he finally found the person he thought was responsible for the theft, it turned out to just be some poor woman whose guys Ruby had stolen. 
Smashing the frightened woman's car and pulling her from the burning wreckage, the caped man demanded that she return his money, but the police intervened, and soon the interplanetary refugee in a caped tracksuit was shot dead in the streets of Sin City. Godzooks! Okay, thanks for that, Osvaldo. And... Previously in the Defenders. Richard Rory and Amber Grant showed up at the Defenders headquarters and asked for our titular non-team's assistance in locating their missing pal, James Michael Starling. Hellcat and Valkyrie agreed to help, but since Steve was off researching how to defeat an unmentionable foe, which I call the Underpants Monster, Nighthawk had quit the Defenders and was legally barred from superheroic activity, and the Hulk had stomped off to be alone and yell at whales, the Defenders found themselves a bit understaffed. Fortunately, Hellcat had a well-stocked superhero Rolodex from her days as an Avenger, so she called up the Wasp, a.k.a. Janet Van Dyne. Janet showed up in the Avengers Quinjet, and Patsy, Val, Richard, Amber, and Ruth hopped in and started flying around the eastern seaboard, and I guess yelling out the window as they searched aimlessly for their missing chum. Speaking of missing chums and wandering aimlessly, the Hulk was stomping around the forest when a big silvery blob showed up from space and started hassling him. The Jade Giant was in no mood to be harassed by a shiny space Barbapapa and responded predictably by attempting to smash his amorphous antagonist. But much to the Green Goliath's consternation, the reflective reprobate proved to be surprisingly smash-resistant. Meanwhile, in Las Vegas, nonsensically noggined ne'er-do-well Ruby Thursday and her Mephistophelian meaned minion Dybbuk had swiped the caped man's corpse from the city morgue. The confoundingly countenanced creeps proceeded to perform an ad hoc autopsy on the expired alien and were surprised to find that not unlike Ruby's own bowling ball-looking magical science nonsense head, the caped man's body was made up of a bizarre combination of bioorganics and robotic circuitry. Interesting. And speaking of nonsense, space, and robots, James Michael Starling and his pal Diane were hiding out in his childhood home in the hills of rural Pennsylvania when a bunch of purple space robots wearing what looked like slightly scaled-down version of Havoc from the X-Men's ridiculous hat showed up outside and started blasting at the precocious preteen's house with their space lasers. Jan Michael Vincent ran out to the lawn and blasted back with those mysterious beams that sometimes shoot out of Omega symbols on the palms of his hands, but appeared to be done for when our defenders spotted the hullabaloo from their Quinjet and decided to lend a hand. Patsy, the Wasp, and Valkyrie fought valiantly to fend off their alien android adversaries. JMS started feeling a bit under the weather and he and Diane retreated into the house so that he could have a lie down. Seeing as how her opponents were robots and not living beings, Valkyrie even went so far as to dispatch a few robots by using the pointy end of her sword for once. Hooray! Our understaffed protagonists were still badly outnumbered, so Patsy returned to the Quinjet and placed a distress call to any super types who might be listening. Much to everyone's surprise, the call was answered by the oft-aloof Moondragon. Hooray! Moondragon was the badass psychic bald lady who had previously been in charge of Hellcat's Jedi training on a moon of Saturn. As the previous sentence would indicate, she is totally rad. Moondragon used her brain beams to scoop some exposition out of Patsy's noodle, then walked up to the lead robot and demanded that they knock off all the lasering for a minute and tell her what was going on. The head robot in charge sheepishly apologized for inconveniencing Moondragon and insisted that normally they would explain things fully, but that their mission was time-sensitive and required immediate action. This awkward conversation was interrupted by a bright flash that came from within the house. 
After a moment of confusion, the lead robot said that their sensors now indicated that the object of their mission was no longer present. The robots all hopped back into their flying saucers and headed off to where their tracking equipment indicated their target was now located. Our heroes rushed into the house to check on Jan Michael Vincent, only to find that the strangely stoic boy was nowhere to be found, and in his stead, lying on the floor, was the corpse of the caped man! Gadzooks! Where did those space robots scurry off to? How did the caped man's corpse get to Pennsylvania? And two years after the publication of the last issue of Omega the Unknown, will beleaguered orphan James Michael Starling finally get a happy ending to his story? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so Las Vegas, it doesn't really come up. And no. No, 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 no. No, he certainly does not. Ruby Thursday is hanging out in her secret Las Vegas laboratory thinking about how much she hates those dang defenders. She casually grows a couple of tentacles out of her nonsense bowling ball head and uses them to tear up a photo of the offending non-team. Then, she turns her attention to her uninvited and involuntary guest, one James Michael Starling. It turns out that when that big flash of light happened at the end of the last issue, James Michael and the corpse of the caped man switched locations. Ruby had been about to carve up the caped corpse to find its secrets, when she suddenly found herself short one dead super cyborg. She asks Jan Michael Vincent how he got there, and the kid's like, I don't know. Narratively convenient but illogical plot contrivance? Okay, he doesn't say that, but that is the answer. Unfortunately, Ruby is not one to take narratively convenient but illogical plot contrivance for an answer. The sphere-skulled scientist had planned on slicing up a body, and intends to follow through on that plan. She has the Dybbuk hold Jan Michael Vincent in place, and advances menacingly towards him. Suddenly, the havoc-hatted purple space robots Kool-Aid man their way through the wall of Ruby's lab. They had tracked their target across the country, and now brandished their ray guns, intent on completing their mission. Mistakenly assuming that she is the target of the robot's unexplained animosity, Ruby orders the Dybbuk to defend her, and the duo of Dewbatters launch into an assault on the extraterrestrial invaders. The resulting battle soon spills onto the Vegas Strip, where it attracts the attention of a certain quartet of colorfully costumed crime fighters. Valkyrie, Hellcat, the Wasp, and Moondragon had followed the space robot's flying saucers to Las Vegas, but had since lost their trail. Tensions were starting to rise within the formidable foursome, and they began quarreling about how to proceed with their mission, when suddenly, one of the space robots they had been following got punched through a wall right in front of them. Hmm, seems like that might be a clue. Valkyrie recognized the unfortunate robot's assailant as Ruby Thursday, and she, Hellcat, and the Wasp waded into the fray and began battling Ruby and the Dybbuk in a downtown Donnybrook of epic proportions. Hooray! As Moondragon's companions slug it out with a confusingly craniumed criminal and her apparently infernal associate, the self-described goddess of the mind keeps her eyes on the prize and follows a confused James Michael Starling, who had wandered away from the fracas. She watches with growing concern as the perturbed pre-adolescent spots one of the flying saucers and with apparent ease, heedless of any collateral damage it might cause, blasts the alien vessel from the sky, sending it careening into the side of a hotel. The boy walks away from the carnage, frightened at that which he has wrought, but aware that his power is growing. 
Moondragon prepares to pursue the newly puissant preteen, but is distracted by the cries from a nearby robot who was not fully incapacitated by the crash. As she approaches the ailing automaton, she is startled by the realization that while the robot is mechanical in nature, it is a sentient being. She reaches out with her psychic powers and makes contact with the robot's mind. As soon as she does, she's like, Oh shit! We fucked up big time! And runs off in search of James Michael to try to prevent the cataclysmic destruction her brief mind chat led her to believe may be imminent. Now that we know that the robots are sentient, I feel pretty shitty about that hooray that Val was using the pointy end of her sword. Sorry about that, sentient robots. Meanwhile, back on the East Coast, the Hulk continues in his unsuccessful attempts to smash the shit out of that weird silvery space barbapapa. Eventually, the space barbapapa gets bored and yoinks the Hulk into its space tummy. Uh-oh. After a few seconds, the Hulk passes out and reverts to Bruce Banner. The shiny blob spits the Hulk out and somehow re-Hulkifies Banner in the process. Before zooming back up into space, the goo gloats that after defeating the Hulk, it stuffed a name into his brain. The Hulk now knows the name of the unmentionable underpants monster of whom Steve is off trying to scout weaknesses. When the Hulk least expects it, the space Barbapapa will activate the Hulk as a sleeper agent. Shitty. Still, could have been worse. The Space Barba Papa could have uploaded a U2 album into the Hulk's brain without getting the Hulk's permission first. Back in Las Vegas, the battle between the Defenders and Ruby Thursday and the Dybbuk rages on. Things aren't going so great for the good guys, but then Wasp uses one of her bio-disruptor Wasp-sting blasts to try to bust through what she assumes is Ruby's helmet. The attack is surprisingly effective. The only problem is... That wasn't a helmet. Janet just inadvertently exploded Ruby's weird-ass magic snow globe of a head like she was trying to make a sequel to Scanners. Unsettling. Ruby collapses lifelessly to the ground as the wasp stares, horrified at what she has done. The Dybbuk lets out an anguished cry and scoops up his fallen comrade, then teleports away, hopefully heading somewhere where he can buy a giant jar of crazy glue. Bye, the Dybbuk! Bye, Ruby Thursday! Patsy and Val make mental notes to themselves never to fuck with Janet, then rush off in pursuit of James Michael. Doesn't take too long to find him. They can pretty much just follow the growing trail of mangled robots, destroyed building, and crashed UFOs. I guess the UFOs aren't unidentified anymore, or flying for that matter. So, just O's then, I guess. The heroes catch up to the object of their search. James Michael is glowing with newfound power as he stands over a recently crashed O. The kid seems pretty out of it and doesn't really understand what is happening. His glow of power has expanded into a dome and is leeching energy from everyone and everything within a 30-foot radius. The boy uses his power to continue his destructive rampage. Moondragon lies nearly unconscious a few feet away from Starling, having already had most of her psychic powers unintentionally hoovered up by the boy. Frustrated and angry, James Michael lashes out at the defenders as they approach him, blasting them with his Omega Beams before turning his attention to the last F.O. that is still F. Valkyrie and the Wasp bore the full brunt of the attack on the defenders and got knocked out, but Patsy is barely conscious. She watches helplessly as James Michael brings down the last flying saucer, sending it plummeting to the ground. Well, 
actually not plummeting to the ground so much as plummeting into the parked Quinjet where Richard, Amber, Ruth, and Diane had been waiting until the fighting was over. Whoops! Starling is momentarily distracted by the fact that he may have just killed his only friends. Hellcat uses this opportunity to crawl over to Moondragon and check on her. Moondragon isn't looking so hot. With her last ounce of strength, she's like, Patsy, take my hand. Aw, that's sweet. Hellcat grasps Moondragon's hand. As soon as she does, Patsy passes out, and Moondragon jumps up and is like, That's better! Huh? Moondragon continues, Sorry, Patsy. You know your latent psychic abilities that I had been training you how to use when we lived on Titan? Well, I just yoinked those from you. And actually, you know what? I'm not sorry! If you had been better at psychicness, I wouldn't have had to do this. So really, it's your fault. And I'm going to assume that you're sorry. But I'm not yet sure I accept your assumed apology. Have a nice nap! A newly invigorated Moondragon approaches James Michael as he is about to execute the last operational space robot. She's like, If you murder that space robot now, you'll miss out on like four pages of exposition that will attempt to explain what was going on in your cancelled ongoing title. I'm just gonna mind link you to that dying robot so they can have a flashback and we can all see what your deal is. Cool? Oh, whoops, I already linked you guys up before you could answer. I guess I'm not great at informed consent today. My bad. Well, probably your bad, but I haven't figured out why yet. Here we go! An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, on a planet far, far away, there was a race of purple robot people who wore weird-ass havoc-looking hats. The robots had stopped evolving for some reason, and I guess they thought that was bad. So they came up with a bizarre nonsensical plan. They developed a series of fancy super robots that were way more advanced than them. Okay, so far that makes sense. Then they decided to send each robot to a different planet where they would think that they were a native. Why? Because. That's why. Also, each less fancy robot would upload what it had learned to the fanciest robot, which was so fancy that it wasn't even identifiable as a robot. It was completely organic. And it looked like a 12-year-old human boy. You guys, I think that fanciest of non-robotic robots might be someone very familiar to us readers. That's right. The ultimate stage in alien robot evolution is none other than... Jack Norris. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. It's James Michael Starling. Nobody would make a Jack Norris on purpose. James Michael Starling was sent to Earth for his semester abroad or whatever, and the next most fancy robot, which we know as the Caped Man, was sent to a planet of noble warriors who wore rad tracksuits and capes. The Caped Man was a standout warrior on his adopted planet, and eventually, the planet's president or whatever decided to bestow him with the greatest honor they had. The power to tap into the planet's energy and get ridiculous superpowers. The caped man was super honored and was like... On account of he had taken a vow of silence, but he was definitely super honored. But when the havoc-hatted aliens saw what was going on on their space TVs, they were like, Oh shit! This dude isn't designed to handle superpowers like that! He'll flip out and fuck everything up. 
Plus, he might upload those superpowers to the fancy-ass non-robot robot that we've got living on Earth, and that would fuck things up even more. So the purple Havoc-hatted space robots hopped in their flying saucers and went to go get the caped man so that they could depower him or something. But when they arrived, the caped man was like... On account of his vow of silence, but what he thought was something along the lines of... Oh shit! A bunch of robot aliens are attacking my planet that I was definitely born on with their flying saucers. Good thing I got these cool new superpowers so I can fight off this invasion. Unfortunately, just like the Havoc-hatted robots had feared, the caped man was unable to control his new powers. He ended up tapping into the planet's core and killing every living being on the surface. The robots tied the caped man up, but he escaped. Unable to process what had happened, he convinced himself that the robots had destroyed his homeworld and that he was the last survivor. He fled towards the fancy non-robot robot on Earth that he felt an inexplicable connection with. Which more or less brings us up to the beginning of Omega the Unknown when the caped man arrived on Earth and first encountered James Michael Starling. Whew. When Jan Michael Vincent finishes absorbing the last remaining Havoc Had It robot's tail, he freaks the fuck out, unable to process the information he's just received. Yeah, I hear you, buddy. You and me both. The super-advanced bio-organic robot boy lashes out angrily and is like, No, you know what? That's a bunch of nonsensical bullshit. Fuck you, robot. And fuck you, bald lady, for making me listen to that robot's bullshit thoughts. I'm going to blow you guys up. You know what? In fact, I'm going to blow up the whole danged planet. And he prepares to do just that. Shitty. Then Diane pops out of the damaged Quinjet and is like, James Michael, you don't want to kill me, do you? Because that'd suck. James Michael is like, Diane? No, I don't want to kill you. I only wanted to blow up this stupid planet because I thought you were already dead. This changes everything. Well, shit. It's too late for me to stop the explosion all the way, but I can direct it inwardly so that it only destroys me and not anyone else. Bye! And with that, James Michael Starling implodes, briefly appearing as a human-shaped silhouette of Kirby Crackle before entirely ceasing to exist. Wow. Diane rushes to where her friend once stood, but it is too late. Moondragon addresses the defenders and is like, well, I really fucked that up. But not as badly as you guys fucked that up. I'm going back to space, and I'm taking Hellcat's psychicness with me. Lose my number, Defenders. Lose my number! Also, I guess in the end, those Havoc-hatted robots did a good job designing their fancy non-robot robot boy, after all. Because it's nice that James Michael Starling saved the planet by changing his mind at the last minute about blowing it up. Truly, he was the best of us. Moondragon, away! Bye, Moondragon. Well, I guess that wraps everything up. I mean, presumably at some point, Richard, Amber, and Ruth are going to hop out of the Quinjet and ask, So, did you guys ever find that 12-year-old boy we asked you to look for? But that's an awkward conversation for another time. I guess I'm just left with one question. It's... Kind of a minor detail, but what the fuck just happened? And 
as ego-brained listeners will remember, our guest this week, Dr. Osvaldo Oyola, recently returned from fighting in a Atlantean revolution due to a distinctive birthmark and a prophecy. I'm assuming that that's all over and has gone well, because joining us again this week is Dr. Osvaldo Oyola. Osvaldo, how's it going? It's going pretty good, though. The revolution was, was a failure, unfortunately. I barely escaped. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. The problem is is that I'm not... I, let's put it this way. I can fold a fitted sheet better than I can swim. <laughs> yeah, it seems like maybe there's some miscommunication with prophecies every now and again, because I do remember thinking it's got to be tough to fight underwater when you can't breathe underwater. Yeah, well, they gave me one of those, like, special bubble helmets. It was It was okay, but... Doggy paddling through a revolution in Atlantis is not the way to go. I don't recommend it. Wasn't that a Spalding Gray <laughs> monologue? Doggy paddling through the revolution? Maybe. I'm pretty sure. I think Jay Edidin would be the person to ask, because I think they know <laughs> all about Spalding Gray. Well, I'll have to bring it up with him. Well, Osvaldo, what did you think of this comic? We're talking today about Defenders number 77, the conclusion of the... Omega the Unknown storyline? What'd you think? I don't know. I don't know if it's better or worse than the last issue, uh, having reread it twice just very recently. I think the art is better in a lot of places with the different inkers you can see. Like, I think it was equally as not so great in some places, and maybe that was, um, they had multiple inkers on this issue. Maybe that was Mitchell, who was the inker last time. But then there were definitely places where the art was great and it was what I'm used to from Herb Trimpey and I really liked it. Story-wise, it was rushed. It didn't make any sense. But there is, and now maybe we'll get to this later, there's this great meta element to it that I really am eager to talk to you about because uh, I, I see a kind of meta aspect in the story where they're kind of chiding Marvel and maybe even the fans for even wanting this story in the first place. <laughs> There were some interesting elements that I picked up a little bit on that, but I am curious to hear your thoughts on it. Overall, I had very mixed feelings about this issue. The first time I read this story, or reread it rather, I had a similar feeling to you where it felt like really disjointed and bad and like it didn't make any sense. And actually, the second time I reread it, I was much more split on it. I feel like as a Defender story, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not a Defender story, basically. I felt like as an Omega the Unknown story, these are not the same characters from Omega the Unknown. It picks up on one or two plot elements and resolves them. But as a standalone, like, space robot story, I kind of didn't dislike it. I feel like as a standalone, like, Twilight Zone Outer Limits story, it kind of works. I think I'd give it in that regard like a B, B minus. Hmm. And it did some interesting things. So, yeah, like I said, I, I'm, I'm kind of mixed on it. I think if I can let go the resentment that it isn't a Defender story or an Omega the Unknown story, despite purportedly being both, there's a lot I kind of liked about this issue. But the pacing was definitely a problem. I think it's more Defender story than it is the Omega the Unknown story. And I, I can accept it that way because... I've come to the realization in rereading various Defender stories in recent years and listening to Tighten Up the Defense that the Defenders is really about a group of incompetent superheroes. It is about a group of superheroes who basically just get in their own way and benefit from dumb luck a lot. 
So in that way, it fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you mentioned the different art team, and I agree. The art, I think, is much improved from the last issue, despite having the same, I think, primary creative team of Herb Trimpe and Steve Mitchell. I think the additional inkers of Chick Stone and Al Milgram did a tremendous job. Yeah. And there are certain panels that really stick out as, whoa, that is just stunning. And overall, the line work seemed a little bit more fine in a lot of places. Except where it wasn't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I like Al Milgram's inks pretty well. I think the stuff that I really liked in this, I would maybe tend to ascribe to Chick Stone. Just I think he has like a, a tighter line generally than Al Milgram. And Al Milgram's a guy that I always forget he does stuff other than ink because I think of him as an inker. But he's been the editor on this for a while. He's done a lot of writing and he's done a lot of penciling too. Yeah, I think of him as a person who's done everything basically at Marvel. Yeah. I don't think he's lettered or colored, but if he did at some point, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. The other name that's new on the creative team in this is that we see that there's a plot assist by Mark Gruenwald. Have you read much Mark Gruenwald stuff? Uh, I can't say much. I haven't really returned to it in my, you know, later half of my comics reading and criticism. So I don't have a good sense of his work as a whole, but I know over time here and there, I have read a lot of it. I just can't tell you specifically this story, that story necessarily. Right. I think he's probably best known. He had a pretty significant like 10 year run on Captain America. Right. And I've read a bunch of that, but not specifically like I read the Grunewald run. I just read a bunch of random issues that happen to be a part of that run. I'm mostly in the same camp on that. I actually saw a presentation that Douglas Wolk did about the political history of Captain America. Yeah. And he talked about the Grunewald run and it made me want to revisit it. Yeah. Because he made it sound more interesting than I remembered it. He knows his stuff. One of the interesting things that I did know about Mark Gruenwald, though, is that we talked last issue about how the title of that issue was a Elvis Costello song reference. I was going to ask you whether I meant to look it up and I didn't get around to it, but it, sa it looks like and sounds like Waiting for the End of the World sounds like a song lyric or even a song title. It is a Elvis Costello song title again. Well, there, there we go. Yeah, and Gruenwald, his first couple of Captain America issues are named after Talking Heads song titles. Oh, those I would have gotten right away. Right. Well, especially the first one, I think it was like Cap 307 was uh, Stop Making Sense, which is a pretty obvious one. Right. But it does make me wonder if that was part of his influence on the title, was, uh, was just like the, oh, I'll name this after uh, pop songs that I like. Yeah, I mean... Probably. If I was a comic writer, I'd probably do it a lot. I mean, it's definitely not an uncommon thing. Right. But like I said, I think it's interesting to see kind of like a hipper song reference in this. And there are some like touches to contemporary culture in this comic, too, that I thought were interesting. We see that when the Defenders are hanging out in downtown Vegas, there's a piece of a marquee that says that Tina Turner is going to be playing there that night. Oh, Did really? you catch that one? No. Is that what page is that on? Page three, it's the... Uh, oh, it's, it's in the Golden Nugget, right? Yep. Yeah. It's or right, yeah, right above it. It's You can see the N.A. and Turner. Oh, that's above it, right. That would have been around when she was doing cabaret shows in yeah. Las Vegas, which I was like, that's like 
way sooner a turnaround on cultural references than I think we're used to seeing in Marvel comics. Yeah, maybe they're actually advertising a Lana Turner movie that's playing. It's possible. <laughs> You're right. If it was Wolfman, it would definitely be a Lana Turner reference. Sure. Yeah, his references tend to go like, all right, contemporary reference. Either it'll be something that happened last week or 40 years ago. Right. Gosh, I was about to ask you what didn't make sense to you about the issue, but that's such a <laughs> so, big question. So let me, let me put it this way. I feel like if I hadn't read any Omega the Unknown comics in a couple years before I got to these issues, like a reader at the time probably would have, right? Mm -hmm. And I only had a general memory of Omega the Unknown, I might think that it makes sense and it works. But the more you spend time with the source material, the bigger the holes and the just contradictions and lack of sense, uh, the clearer it becomes. Yeah. So the things that did not make sense are things from, for example, they never really explain the role of his robot parents and the voices, right? Yeah. The voices his mother, robot mother, was warning James Michael Starling about is never actually explained at all or why... Are these the voices of the power from the other planet that Omega passed on to him? That can't quite be the case because he and Omega existed at the same time. He hadn't, or maybe he had passed. That's the other thing that doesn't make any sense. The whole evolution thing with passing on the information doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense just in general of the story. And it doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of how evolution works. Well, it's, I mean, it's specifically robot ev evolution. So, I mean, when you're talking about sentient space robots doing their own weird version of eugenics, I think you end up with a different type of thing, I guess. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's not clear what the ultimate end of the evolution, which James Michael Starling was the example of how that was connected to keeping their species going. How was he keeping their species going if he was clearly as something that was so different? Right. And it, and the fact that each stage had to think of itself as a part of the world that it existed in, which is part of the reason why the caped man was so confused, also makes it, like, was eventually Mike, James Michael Starling supposed to, like, wake up and realize that he was the evolutionary endpoint of this robot species and thus become a new kind of thing. If that's the case, the comic never tells us that. Right. So my understanding of it was, and it's very basic and it doesn't necessarily make sense, but so they had all these different versions of robots that they had been working on and they decided to send each of them out to a different planet where they would like absorb the culture of that planet basically and as they were doing that, instantly upload that information up the chain to each future mm -hmm. robot, I guess. I mean, yeah, that doesn't make sense because it doesn't seem like Omega was getting that. So maybe all of the other robots were just uploading that information to the final version. But neither, neither the Caped Man nor James Michael Starling are robots. Well, the Caped Man is a combination of oh, circuitry and robots right. as ruby explained right. him in the last issue and then james michael is the purely organic version and yeah the connection between those is definitely a little bit iffy so the problem came about when in addition to all of the uploadings of other robots maybe the caped man 
did such a good job as a warrior on his warrior planet that he was put on that the natives there decided to put a nuclear bomb in his brain, more or less. Basically. And then when the robots are like, oh, shit, they shouldn't do that. He didn't know who they were. And because he was so acclimatized to being a native of this planet, then he just blows them all up. That's actually my favorite part is the explanation of how he he was the it makes him a tragic figure right that he he ends up being the cause of the thing he was trying to prevent and destroys what he thinks of as his own planet so it's kind of as if jor-el right and superman in figuring out how to blast kal-el off of krypton actually set off what destroyed krypton it's the equivalent of that kind of thing where he causes the destruction of his home planet that he then blames the robots for Right, and you almost have a similar thing happening with Moondragon, where she's trying to save this situation, but by doing so, she uploads that information to Jan Michael Vincent, and then he is about to blow up the whole planet because of that, too. Yeah, so basically what I understand from the power is that it, like, maybe it gets it from the core of the world. It basically, like, sucks the world into, like, this husk in harnessing this power. That's the way I envisioned it. Yeah. Overall, it seems like a bad plan on the uh, sentient robots part. Like, not just with how it turned out. I mean, I understand the attractive idea of having your future robot selves be back compatible. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I know I'm frustrated that I can't play Def Jam 2 Fight for New York on my PlayStation 4. That's one of my biggest problems, frankly, right now. And so if you get a, a the idea that, oh, okay, well, I can, anything that one of these earlier versions has uploaded, I have access to, I can see the appeal of that. But you gotta be more careful with the safeguards because it's just flooding it with information out of context that it can't handle. Yeah, and I also, the way the plan is described, I would have thought that each individual stage in their artificial evolution would have completed before the next one starts, but it looks like they overlap. Right. I was also a little bit confused because when you see the lineup of the various stages that the robots (laughs) have gone through, we see that it looks like the one right before Omega. And this is one of the panels, unfortunately, where the line work is a little bit sloppier Mm. with the inking, I think. Was that supposed to be Pops? Oh, I don't think so. It looks... Like, robot number three, he's wearing the same, like, sweater vest, glasses combo. It's like an elderly man. Funny, he looks, like a, he looks like a college student to me. He looks like Silver Age Human Torch or something. Oh, I thought he was an older dude. Maybe I'm just reading too much into the sweater vest. But I was just like, what's that sweater vest planet that that guy's living <laughs> yeah. on? Yeah. And that is how we saw Pops dressed earlier. So I think maybe just seeing him next to Omega. Gramps. I think you mean you mean Gramps. I totally mean Gramps. I was mixing him up with the uh, hamburger shop owner from Archie Comics. Right. Uh, as they do so many people. Yes. But yeah, seeing the three of them together, I just was like, oh, is that? That's weird. Is he one of them too? Like, even without that, <laughs> that is an in-between step. I just don't understand it. Like, you go from... The purple robots with the Havoc helmets, mm-hmm. a guy that kind of looks like the Vision. Right. To what to you looks like old man, to me looks like Silver Age Human Torch in college, <laughs> to Superman clone, to James Michael Starling. Yeah, it is really weird. And that doesn't make any sense. The fact that James Michael Starling somehow switched places. Yes, I was about to bring that up. 
with the corpse of the caped man. There is no even nod to an explanation of nope. that. It's just, well, that happened. Uh, oh, okay. There's that. There's the idea of the robots keep getting confused when they they keep thinking they're going to find the caped man, but then they find James Michael Starling. This happens both in the previous issue and it happens in Omega the Unknown number one, where they go to find the caped man, but what they find instead is James Michael Starling. They say the same thing on the previous issue. If they know this story that we are given in issue 77, then they shouldn't be confused by that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was something that didn't even like really register to me just because I think the comic is banking maybe on the fact that there's just so much going on yeah. that you won't keep track of it. And uh, in that regard, it kind of worked in a couple of places. It also made me think that your claim last episode where you thought that maybe Stephen Grant had done the... Uh, middle school book report version of this story and only read issues one and ten of Omega the Unknown and then wrote this because also the, the story the robots give does not fit with the behavior of the robot that appears in Omega the Unknown number three when he teams up with Electro. Right. Right. He has an opportunity to get Omega the Unknown. They have Omega the Unknown captured. Um, I, I hate calling him Omega the Unknown. The, I the know. caped man. And he helps him rob the Jerry Lewis telethon. It makes... Like, it makes no sense. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. Man, really, if you're listening to this, you should read Omega the Unknown. It is a really, really fun series. I know we talked about that a ton last issue, but it just, yeah, I hope that you read it, and I wish that Stephen Grant had read it <laughs> maybe a little bit closer. Yeah. I liked the twist at the end. It did have kind of a Twilight Zone Outer Limits yes. feel, where not just the caped man destroying the planet that he was trying to protect, but then James Michael Starling doing the same thing yeah. and being prompted by Moondragon, who was essentially doing the same thing. Except he's not doing the same thing. James Michael Starling is just having a tantrum. He's not trying to protect anything, I think, when he goes to destroy the world at the end of the issue. Well, he's trying to destroy all the robots, and I think just like the caped man wasn't trying to destroy the planet either. He was just trying to destroy the robots. And I guess because of the enormity of the story that Moondragon has unleashed on him, he's tapping into way too much extra power to do that and is becoming confused. No. Maybe. I don't know. No. I don't think so. I think he already has that power. I don't think Moondragon gave him more power. No, she gave him more information right. though. And, and so that. I think the enormity of the information has caused him to overload his power some way. Because when he was about to destroy that last robot. I mean, that would be bad in the sense that he's killing a sentient being, and especially one that is apparently the last of its kind, but it wouldn't cause the, like, earth-destroying power. It didn't seem like it was about to do that in the way that it does once he's like, no, no, I just can't process this, and has kind of a personal meltdown. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Moondragon does do a lot of, like, self- flagellating i mean not only self-flagellating she lets everybody right. else have it too because she's moon dragon and i love her right but she doesn't shirk her own part in what happens which i appreciate and respect see i read it as her initially claiming responsibility and then being like no 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 you know what fuck this this is actually your fault guys <laughs> No, I don't. Maybe I don't know. I, I don't see. I see it. I see it both ways. I see her being like, "Yes, it is your fault," but I do have some blame. 
if maybe the blame that Moon Dragon has is that she trusted lowly mortals to do anything right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's essentially the same thing because like the defenders had somebody come to them and ask for help. And so they tried. And then Moon Dragon had the defenders come to her and ask for help. And so she tried to do her thing too. And it's so it is, I mean, it, it's essentially doing the same thing. I do love her speech of just like, and never talk to me again. I'm going back to space. Bye. Too bad we know that that's not the case, but. I know. And I got very excited at the end when it said, next, the new Defenders. And we just had a Moondragon story. And I was like, oh, does the Demetrius run start much sooner than I thought it did? Because she is part of, like, the new Defender squad that we end up with Iceman and Beast and all those guys. I think that's 116, so we got a ways to go. It's way down the line. Yeah. But I did get briefly very excited about that idea, because I want Gargoyle to show up. Yeah, I can't wait for Gargoyle to show up. Speaking of Moondragon, in the last episode, I brought up the fact that there was the editor's note saying that, I believe it was Marvel 2-in-1 number 60, Mm -hmm. was the issue in which Moondragon received Patsy's distress call, and that that didn't seem to line up. I looked into that a little bit closer, and the issue that they're citing was an issue that wouldn't come out for a while. So I think the plan was to then have Moondragon do those things in that issue, but plans change. So it wasn't specifically an error yet. That's weird. It's really weird. I don't know why they did that. Someone was like, it's supposed to be Thing and Moondragon, but we're going to do Thing and Impossible Man instead. Well, especially in the late 70s at Marvel. Yeah. To call your shot like that. That's like, okay, so six months from now, here's the story that's going to be happening in this specific issue. Shooter is already the the editor-in-chief, though, so... That's true, but I feel like at this point there was still kind of a scramble for like the production department, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah, there was a there was they were still fixing the the problems. There was a residual chaos. Yeah, so you have the strong authoritarian, but he's not really running a tight ship yet. Yeah, but yeah, this comic was also I was surprised at how dark it was in a few different ways. I mean, first of all, the main thing obviously you have this character who we know as a 12-year-old boy that we've gotten to know over the course of an ongoing series. It only lasted 10 issues, but still he was kind of the central character in that, ending his life. Yes. That was certainly alarming. I was also really shocked to see the wasp blow up Ruby Thursday's head. Yes. I mean, that was... I remember when I first read when I first read this, or not when I first read this, but when I reread it, you know, years later, and I saw that panel, and then also the panel right after it with her blown up head. I mean, I don't even. It, it is. It's shocking. It, I mean, Ruby Thursday is a terrible villain. Like, I mean, she's a great villain and a terrible villain, if you know what I'm saying. Right. But she also didn't deserve to go out like that. I don't think. I mean, that's not in generally either the Defenders or the Avengers playbook. Yeah. They try to play it off like the Wasp thought it was a helmet and she was blowing up the helmet, but it was actually her head. But also, again, this is inconsistent because Ruby Thursday has gone head to head, no pun intended, (laughs) (laughs) 
with the Hulk and Doctor Strange and, you know, live to tell about it. So for the Wasp to just be like, you know what, let me just give it a little extra juice and it blows up her <laughs> supercomputer head. Seemed both like graphic in the way it depicts the head exploding, um, bursting open like a gobstopper or something like that. Uh-huh. And also in the sense that it didn't seem to line up with the Wasp's degree of power. Right. I had to read that as that it was like a DSX Machina where it's just like, oh, it turns out her one weakness was the bioelectrical energy that the wasp unleashes because she has a biotechnological computer head bowling ball thing. But yeah, either way, that was it was shocking in a couple of ways, both in terms of like, oh, that shouldn't have that effect. And also wow, I can't believe they wrote that. Not only that, and then we're going to talk about this when we get the sound effects, but the sound effect of her head open, blowing open. Oh my God, yes, we are definitely going to talk about that when we get to sound effects. Because that juxtaposition (laughs) is part of what makes it so horrific, I think. I completely agree. And you also have the retroactive shock of, I talked about last issue, how nice it was to see Valkyrie using the pointy end of her sword because she's only fighting robots, but now we find out those robots are in fact living beings. Yes. They have been actually killing not just living sentient beings, but living sentient beings that are, I believe, the last of their kind. Correct. And it's just like, oh, fuck. You guys have been fucking up big. (laughs) Yeah. Can we talk really briefly about the Hulk scene? Absolutely. So... Hulk is still hanging out with the Silver Barber Papa. Mm -hmm. And I thought there's something that... um, It's actually when you and Corey are talking about the Teen Titans episodes that often comes up. The that was my plan all along kind of thing. Yeah, that's something that specifically happens with the Church of Blood. Right. I I mean, it happens with a lot of like supervillain master plans, but... Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that's common to superhero comics, but specifically you've been talking about it a lot in New Teen Titans. But what I liked about the fight with the the, the encounter with the Silver Barber Papa is it's actually setting up one of those it was my plan all along, right? What does he say? Become the Hulk again, for locked now within his dim mind is the secret of my master's name. In days to come, that secret will be unlocked. That name will be spoken. Right. So go then to Dr. Strange Hulk fight at his side. So this idea of actually setting up, it was my plan all along to let you go free and fight for some future moment that is important to me. Right. Actually works like to me, that was an example of how you do it. So that is satisfying for the reader in the sense that we know what the heroes don't know. Yeah, it's nice to see it be set up in the actual continuity rather than hastily retconned in at the last minute. Correct, yeah. Yeah, I I also appreciated that. Also, in this particular fight, the big silver Barba Papa, I thought maybe just because he had the Hulk inside him more of the time, it was more like a space Matrushka doll than a Barba Papa. What's a Matrushka doll? The Russian nesting dolls. Oh, nesting dolls, yep. Yeah. Now I want a set of Hulk nesting dolls, but when you get to the smallest one, it's Bruce Banner. That is a really good idea. Gosh, I want one of those too. (laughs) Yeah, it would be great. And you could have the different versions of Hulk, you know? Like, each one could be like Professor Hulk, Grey Hulk, but then we get down to the middle. Oh, totally. 
the Todd McFarlane Hulk, I feel like just its size varied so much that I feel like that has to be the biggest one. Yeah, or maybe like a World War Hulk would be the biggest one. Right. That would be a fun set to have. Yeah. The Green Hulk, Gray Hulk. You heard us Marvel merchandising. Yeah, just give us a little taste. That's all I'm asking Listen, for. all you need to do is send me a free set of Hulk nesting dolls, and the idea is yours. You can have the you can have the, any profit you make. <laughs> wow, that is very generous of you, Osvaldo. Well, since it's likely to happen, I can be as I can afford <laughs> to be really generous. The pacing is pretty disjointed in this issue, frankly. And you had mentioned before that. The initial plan was to just have this whole storyline take place in one issue. Correct. At least that's what Stephen Grant told me. I'm honestly not sure it would have made that much difference now that I see the whole thing. Like, the story that leads up to Moondragon confronting James Michael is so separate from the whole story of James Michael's backstory and fighting the robots that it seems like that kind of could have just been put in the last issue. There wasn't really a need to involve Ruby Thursday with this or take everybody to Las Vegas. It was a way to make continuity with Omega the Unknown number 10 because Ruby Thursday is in it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the only explanation. I do love that shot of of that panel of Hellcat, Valkyrie, Wasp, and Moondragon just walking down the strip. Oh, I do too. And I love that it took place in Vegas. It was a fun background for the story to take place in. Especially once the wreckage begins, once the the carnage of smashed buildings and crashed flying saucers. It's it's perfect for Nevada, right? Oh, It's like Flying Saucer City, you know, the Flying Saucer State. Isn't that that the state motto for Nevada, the Flying Saucer State? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Nevada is the Flying Saucer State and Las Vegas is the city with narrow green shoulders. Yeah. We talked about the Tina Turner marquee, or possibly Lana Turner marquee. (laughs) Did you notice the building that said Stan's Studio that then had a closed banner placed over it? No. Oh, yeah. Now I see it. It's such a specific reference. And I mean, if you're mentioning Stan in a Marvel comic, that has to be Stan Lee, right? Right. Actually, that's where Ruby Thursday's lab was. It's in that building because there's the hole. You see the hole they smash out of. Right. And I wasn't sure if that was part of the meta commentary that you were talking about before about like the state of Marvel comics. It seems like it's a reference to Stan shutting down shop, but like Stan Lee had basically all but retired except as a figurehead at that point and was like doing Hollywood negotiations for the most part. He hadn't quite moved out to LA yet. He wouldn't do that until 81. But by 73, 74, he wasn't writing or editing any titles anymore. Do you think that might be what that was referencing? It seems like it would be a more topical reference than that. And one that honestly, I was kind of surprised was in there. I mean, it could just be as simple as you know, they always sneak in a little reference to people in the bullpen, you know, in comics a lot. And it and there's no meaning besides that. I guess that's possible. It seemed that specifically that it was Stan's studio and then had the additional banner draped over it that said closed. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it was a dig at Jim Shooter. Who knows? Like, you know, because Jim Shooter and Stan Lee never overlapped at Marvel, really, right? They never really worked together. So that even the people who, who were in that 
editorial space before they had some overlap with Stan Lee. So maybe there was, maybe there's something there. Who knows? Or maybe we're just making it up. I don't know. Either way, it was also weird to see Jim Shooter credited as James Shooter, huh. which I don't think I've ever seen before. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe he was saying, maybe he was just experimenting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big boy now. I know I started comics when I was 14, but now yeah. I'm a big boy now. Yeah, I, I like that idea. So in terms of the meta commentary, there was a few bits of either thoughts or uh, narration that made me think about the actual writing of this comic and the demand from readers that it happened and from the the demand, I guess, from editorial to fulfill that, that desire. So for example, on page seven, Moondragon spots JMS sneaking away from the fight, right? And, and she has a really cool line about... Typical, so occupied are they with their fighting that the object of their search slips by them unnoticed, right? Let the defenders engage in senseless battle. This James Michael Starling is far more interesting to me, right? So she doesn't even deal with Dybbuk and Ruby Thursday and just follows the boy. And he's thinking, why is it so hard to think? I'm supposed to be the cold analytical one, but everything's happening too fast and none of it makes any sense. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I'm supposed to be written as cold and analytical. <laughs> right? None of this makes any sense. And two, uh -huh. everything is happening too fast, right? All of those things describe trying to wrap up Omega the Unknown and the characterization of the characters from Omega the Unknown. Yeah, that's really fun. I, I That had kind of slipped by me, but uh, I think that is a good catch. Yeah, and then on page 10, Moondragon, when she does the mind link with the robot and finds out the, you know, the real story for the first time, one of her responses is, how could I have been so stupid? And then she says, uh, we have all been terribly wrong. In their blindness, the defenders may have doomed this world and only I can hope to save it. So this idea that, like, in trying to bring this story to closure and completion, there might actually might be harming the Omega <laughs> the Unknown story. Totally. Finally, at the very end when she gives her speech about she's going to go away and everything. In rushing into this situation, we did not understand. We have taken part in the death of the hopes of an entire race. Now, the entire race part is, you know, you have to think about it metaphorically. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, right, by rushing into this completion of this story, the, the whole thing is kind of essentially or potentially ruined, right? Had the defenders had not interfered with James Michael Starling, he might have been captured and cured, and this race might have grown to be the finest in the, in the galaxy, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so if you hadn't demand that I wrap this story up, then it might have turned into something really cool later on. Correct. Yeah, so I, I'm not suggesting that Stephen Grant thought this way, but definitely that significance is present in the text if you read it that way. Absolutely. We are all the defenders in this. We are <laughs> all complicit as readers in fucking up this storyline. Correct. <laughs> Much like the defenders fucked up the future of that alien mechanized race. Yeah, you should know better. <laughs> you look at what you've done. <laughs> God damn it. Sorry, Moondragon. <laughs> She's the best. <laughs> she really is. I, what I don't like, though, I have to say, to go back to your the darkness that you said earlier about James Michael Starling taking his own life, is that Moondragon does try to ennoble his uh, suicide in her final words, which I found kind of yeah a little gross, right? Like, like having a a twelve year old kid take his life as a noble sacrifice feels gross. 
It does feel gross. It also is, I think, out of character for Moondragon to... Sentimentalize. Not just to sentimentalize, but the way that she phrases it specifically. Yet I shall shed no tears for the mechanoid race, for while they failed, they also succeeded. Their goal was to make a man that the race might survive, and James Michael Starling, the final product of that race, was truly human, for he knew that there were more important things than survival. To have her set up humanity as the end point of the evolutionary process and imply that that's as good as you can ever aspire to be. Yeah. I mean, I guess Moondragon is human, but I mean, I feel like she more than any of the other defenders or really almost any character in the Marvel Universe is aware of humanity's shortcomings. Yeah. Yeah. Everything she says up to that point, I think is great. But then there she kind of loses me. Yeah. But it, it, it does even, though, I think underline your point that after she finishes her speech about how we Defenders readers and the Defenders fucked everything up, it is dedicated to Mary Screeny's Steve Gerber and Jim Mooney. Yeah. It reads almost as a mea culpa for the issue. Well, there's a ton more to cover, but I think most of it's going to come up in the minutia. Are you ready to move into the minutia, Osvaldo? Let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. So, Osvaldo, what do you feel like hitting up first? Let's do sartorially speaking, because that's what I have the least to say about, I think. Okay, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find the most worthy of note? So we see a lot more of the caped man in the flashback portions of this issue than we saw in the previous Mm -hmm. issue. And I always thought of his costume as looking like an Adidas tracksuit, kind of, right? It's got, it's blue, dark blue. It's got the piping, um, except it's got a cape. But in this one, it's not even a V-neck. The Omega neck, the upside down Omega neck, Mm -hmm. I guess you would call it, is so deep and is pecs are so weirdly round like i think the art in the flashbacks among the weakest at least the the line work of the inking it just looks so weird specifically on page 23 it reminds me of that like infamous picture of captain america that rob liefeld did where he is drawn with such large pectoral muscles and such a narrow waist. waist that he has like an hourglass figure that you're not used to seeing on the caped man certainly um and it really does just look like he is particularly buxom in a way that yeah i i think seems a little bit odd and you're right the extra scoop neck of the omega neckline really does accentuate that it's a very odd image yeah the other thing i would point out is just the clothing of the faux i I think of them as kryptonians because it's a very thinly veiled krypton Mm mm-hmm they're kind of Greco-Roman-ish, like toga with a cape, and then the Omega headbands. I, I kind of like that look. It kind—I like the fact that it kind of evoked Krypton, or at least some depictions of Krypton I've seen, without actually being it. Yeah, there is specifically the one close-up on that same page that has the really weird image of Omega. That I actually really like the image of the close-up of the Omegan, I guess. 
the leader or whatever he is. Yeah. Yeah. Where he has like these wide eyes of a zealot that really, really work with his character. Yeah, that's a great panel. The other fashion in this issue that I think is worth commenting on, we already talked about the robot man who was apparently to be sent to Planet Sweater Vest, <laughs> which I just like the idea of. And also, I don't think I had paid as much attention to the Wasp's outfit in last issue, yes. but her outfit in this issue is really cool looking, especially in the panel where the four women are walking down the strip in Vegas. I actually went back and looked at the previous issue to make sure she was still wearing that that, that was the same one because I didn't notice it at all, but I noticed it this time. Honestly, even if she had been wearing a different one, I don't think that would necessarily count as a continuity error with the Wasp no. because she just changes her costumes all the time. Yes. But this one has much more of a like, almost a ski outfit, I would say, look to it. it it's really... Nice. It's sleekly designed. It has that weird little, like, barbed arrow that is coming down at the end of her neckline. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the black and white and red and the, the piping really works on that. I just really like this outfit. Yeah, it's a great costume. Well, Osvaldo, I have a very important question I must put to you, and that is, Behold or be gone? Okay, I'm ready. In this issue, we see our protagonists walking down the strip in Vegas. We see them walking by a venue where Tina Turner is playing. The question I am putting to you, which you must decide whether you would like to behold or be gone, attending a Vegas show in a comic book universe. Hmm. Uh, this is specifically a show that is on the strip. You can choose either, either Marvel or DC to be the universe. Just let me know which one. And uh, yeah, do you want to behold this or be gone it? There are some of the drawbacks that there would be to attending a Vegas show in our universe here, uh, in that you do have to go to Vegas. Right, which I would prefer not to, but yeah. Right. It is a paid trip, though, and you do get to see a act there that would, I think, be universe specific, although it could just be like we do see that Tina Turner is playing there. Can I go back in time? Like, is it, it has to be, does that have to be a contemporary act? Or can I go back to like 1979? I mean. I think you can go back to 1979. I mean, I would go see Lila Cheney. Do you think Lila Cheney's playing in Vegas though? I think she plays wherever the hell she wants. Yeah, I, I agree. Which is why I wonder <laughs> if she would be playing in Vegas. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the issue of the uncanny X-Men where Dazzler is possessed by malice and she's singing for Lila Cheney's band, Incognito, takes place in Vegas. Oh, I think you might be right about that. Okay. I could be I, I could be wrong, but I don't have easy access to it, but I, that's pre I'm pretty sure. So you know what? Look, most bad stuff in the Marvel Universe happens in New York, right? And I'm, right. And I'm a New Yorker. I, don't, I might not live there currently, but the vast majority of my life and up till very recently, I lived in New York. So as a New Yorker, I feel like how much worse could it be going to a show in Las Vegas if, if it got interrupted by some superhero shenanigans? It's probably a lot less likely than just going to fuck to work, right? Like I would probably work at like Empire State University and the Jackal would make <laughs> like clones of me or something. So. You know, sure, especially if I can go back in time and see any show I want in Las Vegas. Yeah, behold. Definitely, definitely behold. 
Okay, well, here are some drawbacks that you might not have thought of. First of all, if you're going to be in the Marvel Universe, I think there's probably about an 80% chance that no matter what show you buy tickets to, or are given tickets to in this context, uh, Rick Jones is just going to show up and play instead. <laughs> That's actually probably what Rick Rolling means in the Marvel Universe. He has his finger in every musical and sidekicking pie and I got to say, most of those pies, in my opinion, are made out of steel. Also, if you are in Vegas, in any comic book universe, it is going to put you in proximity to a comic book version of Cirque du Soleil. And in our universe, Cirque du Soleil performers are a fraction of an inch away from being cartoonish supervillains. In a comic book universe, circuses are nearly synonymous with super crime. They are going to be doing all kinds of nefarious things. You are almost certain to get kidnapped by these circus goers and probably hypnotized and or murdered by them. I think perhaps even more so than in comic book New York. I'll take the chance. Yeah? I actually, uh, a good friend of my wife is a, a Cirque du Soleil, like, stage manager like toys tours with them and stuff so maybe i i have mm -hmm. a, a a gentler though it's not my style i have a gentler view of Cirque du soleil so oh i'm not opposed to it other than uh that they would try to interact with me if i was in the yeah, audience I don't like that the breaking of the fourth wall is terrifying to me but i'm just saying just they basically have superpowers and in the comic book universe especially a circus skill is almost exclusively associated with crime i still will behold listen okay. i've seen a lot of bad con i've seen a lot of great concerts in my life and i've seen a lot of bad concerts in my life and even the bad concerts were worth a story so i'll say i'll fair say enough behold. how about you okay well i think you're gonna get hypnotized and turned into a criminal but that's fine I I am going to give it a be gone. I just, I really don't, well, oh gosh. I don't really want to see Rick Jones play, but I am curious about seeing the crowded Rick Jones concert because I'm pretty sure Rom would end yeah. up showing up. Yeah, what about Rick Jones and Tom Jones? One night only. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, if we're in the DC universe too, there's also a pretty good chance that Don Rickles is going to be showing up and therefore probably Darkseid is going to be showing up. So that one, I I, I would be curious to see Don Rickles perform, but uh, I don't want to encounter Darkseid at any point. So DC Universe is getting a firm begone for me. I mean, Don Rickles, you're just as likely to become the target of his comedy if you're in the audience. Yeah, but at the end, he would tell me that I was a great guy. Okay. Yeah, ah, oh gosh. Yeah, I'm going to give it a be gone. I got you. The ability to see all sorts of concerts, to me, that, you know, overpowers any other consideration. I just don't want to be on the Vegas Strip, I guess. No, no do I. I mean, I wouldn't go, <laughs> unless I could go to any show I want. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, the combination of a general aversion to the Vegas Strip and an overriding fear of crime circuses, I, I think I'm giving it a be gone. Okay. Okay, this category was actually a pretty difficult one for me. Every issue of a Defenders comic has one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this comic, who was your sucker? 
Well, it was easier for me this time because I feel like the last episode you gave me the permission to go outside of the core defenders. And thus, mm-hmm. I'm going with James Michael Starling. Yeah, I, I the reason it was difficult for me was because I chose James Michael Starling last issue for the reasons that I would choose him in this but one. But he, he hangs a lampshade on it himself in the panel I brought up before, right? And he says, yeah. I'm supposed to be the cold analytical one, but everything is happening too fast. None of it makes sense. And all he's like blasting things like like the carnage. is. A, that's actually some of the best art and best panels in the issue is just the carnage of him destroying these flying saucers that are smashing into hotels and casinos. It's mm-hmm. just so. And one of the things that makes Omega the Unknown so great is that he is a thoughtful 12 year old boy. He's thinking he's so disconnected or such an outsider from culture uh, and from our society that he's always rethinking, well, why do I have to do this? Or why do you act that way, right? So for him to just so easily, over the course of one issue, fall into the role of just lashing out and destroying everything and not trying to think it through strikes me as a sucker moment. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah, like I said, the only reason I'm not choosing him is because I did choose him last issue for kind of similar reasons. I'm more extreme in this issue, and there is more of a, like, arrow sign pointing to them in this issue. But I I didn't feel like I could choose him again. I I think you're absolutely right. He is acting like a sucker. I was also kind of tempted to go with Richard Rory and Amber Grant and Mm. Ruth for just hanging back in the Avengers Quinjet during the whole thing. I can maybe see Ruth doing that as she's written in Omega, but for all of Richard Rory's timidity, he doesn't actually seem that averse to inserting himself into dangerous situations. And I don't think Amber would sit put while her 12-year-old friend runs roughshod and gets murdered essentially yeah i mean we we don't right that's another thing that we didn't bring up before but there's no real reaction to the death of james michael starling by his close friends right but ultimately i decided to go with nighthawk for sticking <laughs> to his resolution to not put on his nighthawk costume for an entire issue that is just way outside of his wheelhouse yeah did you consider Dybbuk at all for his sympathetic moment when Ruby Thursday is destroyed? I considered it, but I feel like we don't actually know enough about Dybbuk to know whether that's in character yeah. or out of character. We do see that he has some kind of a bond that is not explained with Ruby Thursday. So maybe it's just he's such a blank slate of a character yeah. that I, I, I felt like I couldn't quite give it to him. It was a touching moment. It was. His sob that he lets out of the just, gah, especially where you don't see anything like that coming from him beforehand, is genuinely touching, especially, as I said, because we were still kind of ourselves just shocked at having Ruby Thursday's head explode. Speaking of which, sound effects. What did you think was the most noteworthy sound effect in this issue? So... My runner-up is going to be the the crash that is on page 7, S-K-R-A-S-H, when the flying saucer is smashed into the Mint Casino Hotel. Right, that's the old English version of the way you would shorten God's crash. (laughs) Crash, right. (laughs) But I have to go with the pop that 
accompanies the destruction of Ruby Thursday's head. The picture itself is so graphic and so alarming and the sound is so perfunctory and almost like happy. It's a very pop yeah. sound. Yeah. Like I said earlier, the juxtaposition between the image and the sound they use to describe it, just, it's like insult, adding insult to injury. It's like, it's so, it's horrifying. It really is horrifying. It really is. Yeah, I had the, the same one. Just the simple, almost happy pop noise coupled with that image. And uh, the other one that I, I thought was also just the fact that preceding it, the noise that necessitates the pop is the noise of wasp firing her wasp stings, making the noise zing. So it's just zing, pop. And it's like, oh, fuck. And wasp thinking, oh my gosh, that isn't a helmet. That's her head. Yeah. <laughs> a special runner up to the snack on page 14. <laughs> I like that too. I like when, when the artist takes a moment to show like how a power works or how like a device works. Like, so we know where and what Patsy is swinging from. So we see her grappling hook grabbing onto the roof of the building. That snack, I just, I really appreciated that. I liked that too. So now that Patsy doesn't have her mental powers, is she going to be able to operate that shadow cloak? I mean, she never op... Like, wasn't that part of how she was able to? Well, I mean, I know she didn't, but she could have. I never go to the ocean, but I feel better knowing it's not that far away. Listen, <laughs> if that shadow cloak even shows up again in the next, let's say, 12 issues, I will send you a dollar. <laughs> okay. And if anyone else wants to mail me a dollar, that's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. What was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you enjoy most, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? So my runner-up is the description we talked about before in the panel where James Michael Starling has that dome of energy around him. And it says, the energy pours fiercely and silently from him now. A dozen different emotions wash through the boy. And as he succumbs to the feelings he has spent his life evading, the sphere energy around him leeches power from all within its range, and it continues to grow. Pretty good. Yeah, I like that. I like that narration. But I think my number one is Moondragon. And she says, this is after she takes the power from Hellcat. And it's just, it's a, again, a perfect Moondragon moment. For had you used those powers correctly, my part in this affair would have been unnecessary. <laughs> Man, you squandered the gift that Moondragon gave you and she will let you know. Yeah, no shit. I gotta say, I hate that kind of apology, though. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry that I'm doing this, but you deserve it. And I'm not sorry that I'm doing it at all. It's the same kind of thing where it's just like, hey, thanks so much for giving me this ride. But it is still on your way. It's like, you don't need to say that last part. Yeah. Just leave it at the thank you. Leave it at the I'm sorry. Don't tag in the you brought this upon yourself. Yeah. My favorite words also come from Moondragon. They are on the final page when she is like Poochie returning to her home planet. Yeah. Just by levitating up into the sky, which I guess she doesn't need a spaceship anymore. Never summon me again. No longer will I have anything to do with your kind. Once my researches are complete, I shall leave this planet to its own foolish ways. Yeah, that's a good one. The panel before it is good, too. Now that plan is destroyed, 
I must bear the guilt of my part in that destruction. <laughs> yep. But mostly you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Man, Moondragon's speeches are so good. Yeah, it's a little Namor-like, but even better. Yeah, I agree. What was your favorite panel in this issue? So, I, again, I like the art in this issue better than the last. There's a lot of things to choose from. The opening splash, once you get a, it's a little chaotic, but once you get a sense of what's happening in it, is really great. Yeah, there is some loving detail on Ruby's tentacles that are growing out of her head in that. Yeah. And then just the Defenders. First of all, the fact that Defenders are all women in this issue and they're walking down the strip. We talked about that splash. That, it's not a splash, but that big panel, which is really great. Yeah. I called that panel Ladies Night and I absolutely loved that one. Below it to the left is also a panel where Wasp is whispering into Valkyrie's ear about laying off on Patsy because Moondragon is, you know, hard to take, you know, and mm -hmm. I call that one gossip. Gossip. <laughs> Right? It's just a great thing. And, and Moon Dragon says, you know, you need not whisper. You know, she's a goddess of the mind, so she hears all. But ultimately, because I could not in good conscience choose the pop of <laughs> Ruby Thursday's head, I went with James Michael Starling's hand with the Omega Stigmata on it, kind of using his power to draw the flying saucer into the casino, the Mint Casino Hotel, just the the carnage right the wreckage of that it just it's very kinetic and you can really get a sense of the degree of his destructive power um so it's the same one with a scratch before yeah i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to go with that as my favorite that one is really really good for a smaller moment i like on page 15 right after the dybbuk disappears there's a panel where valkyrie's face is in the foreground but the focus is patsy saying I guess that means they're gone for good. And speaking of vanishing, where the heck's Moondragon? But you see the wasp flying down and Valkyrie just kind of staring off into the middle distance, looking vaguely pleased that Ruby Thursday's head just exploded. It's a nicely drawn panel. I guess. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a confession. What I don't like about that panel is that I don't remember the actor's name, but it looks like Andy Bernard from The Office is inside Hellcat's <laughs> cowl. Oh, it totally does. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, what is that guy's name? You're going to need to do an editor's note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I can't. I mean, there's another one where it looks like it's Jean Smart in her cowl, and I think that's awesome. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I was just focused on Valkyrie in that one. But you're right. Patsy's face does look a little bit off, and it's Ed Helms, I just remembered. Ed Helms, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to poo-poo on your choice. Don't that, feel bad about it at all. Is that your choice or do you have another? That's my backup. I think my favorite is the the ladies night one. Yeah. The other one that I do think is worth noting just for its weirdness. I don't think it's necessarily my favorite, but just before James Michael completely destroys himself and turns into all Kirby Crackle, there's one where he's doing weird like Dracula jazz hands. He's doing the Macarena. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he totally is. Yeah, I called it jazz fusion hands, but more jazz fishing hands. <laughs> but yeah, it's just such a weird image. Yeah, he's totally doing the Macarena. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as the best defender? You're not going to be surprised. It's Moondragon. <laughs> 
moon dragon, moon dragon, moon dragon. I'm being followed by a moon dragon. (laughs) (laughs) See, I was going the Harvey Sid Fisher astrology song, Moon Child, for that one. When they were briefly, I believe, in the 70s, trying to rebrand the astrological sign Cancer as Moonchild. Yeah, I'm a Cancer, but I, you know, I don't problem. I like the crab. But yeah, Moon Dragon. I maybe I'm being a little more generous, but I feel like her willingness to take her part in the responsibility of how much they fucked up, her willingness to hold the defenders accountable for how they fucked up, for her not falling into the usual like, oh, there's supervillains here, we got to fight them. And rather being like observant and being like, the reason we're here is James Michael Starling. So let me actually look out for him and see what I can do about that. In all of those ways, both in style and substance, I have to give it to Moondragon. I can understand that. I was annoyed with her for taking back Patsy's powers and the non-apology that she issued for that. I think overall she did do a very good job, and I do love the character in this. But, I mean, the fact that she decided to link up James Michael Starling and the robot, and that was her big play, and it did kind of result in James Michael almost blowing up the planet and blowing up himself. I can't quite give her the best nod on this. I decided to go with Patsy because at least she didn't murder anyone. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's a low bar to clear, but I mean, I think she's the only defender that over the course of the last two issues didn't murder anybody explicitly. So, uh, yeah, she got my vote. Okay. Conversely, who did you have as the worst offender? I'm sad to say it's Valkyrie. Yeah. Um, she's hardly in this issue at all. She's overwhelmed by Ruby Thursday, who she can't, she's a hard time fighting because she can't fight women. Right. Which I did appreciate that they had a callback to that because that has been forgotten about right. for about like 30 issues now. She gets grabbed up by Dybbuk at one point and gets flying kicked by Ruby Thursday. She gets immediately zapped by James Michael Starling when they find him again. And then that's it, right? She barely even has anything to say. She looks off in the middle distance, as you said. And ultimately, since she is the leader of the Defenders, I think she holds a responsibility for the degree to which they fucked up. Mm. You know, when even if she didn't ultimately make those decisions by herself and she had other people encouraging her as the leader, right? The buck has to stop with you. And so, unfortunately... As much as I don't want this to be the case, Valkyrie, I think, is ending up, is turning out to be a not very good leader for the Defenders. I want her to be a great leader. Yeah, I agree. I actually, in our previous discussion, found a new choice that I had. I had previously been leaning towards giving it to Moondragon for the reasons that I discussed about why I couldn't choose her for the best, despite liking her very much in this issue. But Moondragon's speech and your analysis of it leads me with the out that, uh, Us readers are essentially (laughs) the defenders. And we did such a bad job in clamoring for an Omega the Unknown resolution, or specifically defenders readers in the 70s, that that they ended up hastening the demise of this character. And yeah, I got to give it to 70s defenders readers. Wow, that's a new one. Yeah. You know, I'll stick with Val, but I think that is a very good choice. Thank you. Now, Osvaldo, we both know that be they in Russian nesting doll form or otherwise, the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? 
Okay, so I had to think about this one for a while because I couldn't come up with anything from what the Hulk did himself. So I'm going to um, assume that this is based on his debriefing later at some point and finding out what happened. But really, mm-hmm. what I'm going to say is secrets hurt everyone is one of the Hulk's rules. Ah. Keeping secrets hurts everyone, right? Because you're ultimately responsible for the consequences stemming from the incomplete information of the people who you're keeping secrets from. So that is both including the robots themselves who cannot tell their evolutionary counterparts um, that they are part of this experiment. It is Mm -hmm. part of Omega never explaining, or the kinked man, never explaining to anyone where he came from or what he was doing in the original issues of Omega the Unknown, which might have cleared things up. So there's a whole bunch of secretive uh, goings on in both the original series and in this wrap-up that I think could have helped avoid a lot of bloodshed and a lot of destruction of downtown Las Vegas. So I think that that's his rule, is that secrets hurt everyone. I think that's a very good rule. I had the Hulk's rule being, be nice to robots. (laughs) That is true. It doesn't hurt anything. And we find out in this issue, they rush in without asking questions, assume that the robots are expendable and non-sentient. That turns out to be a bit of a murderous whoopsie. And just the topic and the subject seems to keep coming up in science fiction, usually in terms of metaphor. But you know what? It doesn't hurt anything to be nice to robots. And I think that's advice that we could all take. First of all, just yes, better safe than sorry. Uh, Maybe they're sentient. Maybe someday there'll be a robot uprising and uh, it'll be nice to be on the right side of that one. Yeah. Also, I know a lot of people like with their voice activated, like, Surrey or Alexa type thing or whatever. I uh, think it's funny to be very mean or speak derogatorily to them. And I feel like that is just a bad idea on a couple of levels. First of all, the ones that I talked about, but also I think it just is training you to behave rudely to a, in this case, generally female presenting person that is in a subservient position to you. And I yeah. think that's fucked up too. And I think the Hulk knows that that's fucked up. And so, yeah. Uh, just, you know, be nice to robots. I think there wasn't even a recent study about about the way people treat robots and, like, automated things, and it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, well, more people should listen to the Hulk and his rules. I agree. Well, Osvaldo, I believe that just leaves us with one final category. In the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, November... What Wong doings was Wong doing? So Wong almost led us into a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. Oh, no. It wasn't his, I mean, it was his fault, but it wasn't intentional, obviously. In late October or early November of 1979, Wong decided to travel west since Doctor Strange was out of the Sanctum Sanctimonious off in Atlantis recruiting Namor for whatever they were doing. And he decided he didn't want to stay in an empty house. So he traveled out west to visit Richard Simmons' uh, exercise studio because he had been hearing about it. And you know Wong, he is very much involved and is a fan of uh, physical exercise and staying in shape and especially new ways that can get people interested in doing that. So he went and visited Slimmons, which was the name of Richard Simmons' (laughs) exercise studio in Beverly Hills. Oh, my. 
And while he was there, he struck up a friendship with Richard Simmons because, you know, Wong is a very personable person. Richard Simmons is a very happy person. And so at that time, Richard Simmons was considering going into the very nascent VHS market with exercise tapes. It was before Sweating to the Oldies, but, you know, he lent... Wong an early tape to see what he thought, you know, is, is this something that I should pursue? So Wong took the tape and he's like, when well, I go back to New York, I'll take a look at it and see what I think. On his way back east, though, through his friendship that's been well documented with Jimmy Carter, he had arranged to get a tour of NORAD in Colorado. So he is touring NORAD and around that time they had recently installed new computer systems to control the missile defense systems and detect Soviet launches and things like that. So he was very interested in that because you know Wong's very interested in computers. But during the tour he accidentally put the tape somewhere, he put it down for a minute and then he left uh, without it. He went back east a couple days later, early in the morning of November 9th, something else was happening that Wong wasn't aware of. The National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, American National Security Advisor, got a call at 3 a.m. at home. NORAD detected 250 Soviet missiles on their way to the United States. So he was flipping out. He got up. He's trying to figure out what to do. He actually didn't wake up his wife and child because he figured everyone's about to die in a half an hour. And he thought better to let them sleep. Then he gets another call. We were wrong. It's not 250 missiles. It's 2,200 missiles on their way. Oh, man. And so it's a full out attack. So he's reaching for the phone. He's about to call President Jimmy Carter to let him know that this is what's happening. They've scrambled air defense. The planes are in the air. They've got their bombs. You know, we're ready to retaliate. At that same time, Wong was having trouble sleeping because he felt like, you know, he was missing something. He was forgetting something. And then he remembered, oh, my tape. So he calls up NORAD in the middle of the night to ask if anybody had found his tape. And that's when they realized, when you look back at the record now, they'll say that it was a nuclear exercise tape that had accidentally been connected to the computers <laughs> that caused the false launches. But really, it was a Richard Simmons exercise tape that when, you know, since the systems weren't designed to work together, came across as 2200 missiles coming from the Soviet Union. Uh. So when they got the call from Wong asking about the tape, they figured out that it was a false alarm that that's what had caused it. So then the National Security Advisor got one last call right before he was about to tell Carter to give the word to retaliate. False alarm, there's no Soviet missiles. And to this day, you don't hear about the exercise tape because everyone's embarrassed, you know? Makes sense. So they just say, oh, it was a nuclear exercise tape, but it wasn't. It was a Richard Simmons exercise tape. And that's the Wong doings that were happening in November of 1979. Wow. Good to know. That may have been some of the Wong doings that Wong was doing, but it was not the only time that Wong nearly caused something catastrophic to happen to our universe that month. In fact, he actually did unleash something terrible into our world. See, Wong had recently struck up a correspondence with the writer Kurt Vonnegut. He had noted that 
Moondragon used the phrase Sirens of Titan as an exclamation. And he's like, that sounds familiar. And so he looked up that Kurt Vonnegut had written a book, Sirens of Titan. And he uh, he began a correspondence with him. They got along well. And subsequently, Wong was invited to the wedding of Kurt Vonnegut and photographer and author Jill Kremens on November 24th. So he was very excited about that, but he was trying to figure out what gift to give. And so Steve was talking with him, and Steve was like, who is getting married, Wong? And why wasn't I invited? And Wong is like, well, it's uh, this uh, a photographer and, and children's author named Jill Kremens. And Steve was like, oh, yes, I have one of her books about riding horses. It's called The Very Young Rider. It's quite good, quite good. I should have been invited to that wedding. Who is she marrying? And Wong says, it's an author named Kurt Vonnegut. You probably would know him from Slaughterhouse-Five. And Stephen hears that, and like he so often does, leaps to an assumption. And he's like, Slaughterhouse-Five? So he's a supervillain. One member of that fiendish quintet, is he? <laughs> hmm. Well, I don't see why you would want to go to his this wedding, but since you are, you should bring a nice gift. Let's see, she likes riding, and he is a fiendish demon from hell. Perhaps I can open a floodgate to hell, and you could get one of those horses that Son of Satan likes to ride around on. You, you know, the ones that have uh, snake tails for butts? And so he opened a portal to hell for Wong, and Wong explained that that was not, in fact, what Slaughterhouse-Five was. Kurt Vonnegut was not a supervillain, but unfortunately, something came through that portal. Something was unleashed on our universe from the darkest bowels of hell. And that was the song, Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. Oh my God, Wong is responsible for that? In a roundabout way, yes. It, it escaped from hell and was unleashed on our airwaves. And uh, he's felt terrible about it ever since. It's really more Steve's fault, but... Wong should have known that that would be the conclusion that Steve would leap to. And and yeah, that is what Wong was up to in November of 1979. I totally need to reconsider my view of Wong. Starting nuclear war is one thing, but unleashing simply having a wonderful Christmas time by Paul McCartney on the world. I know. That's up there. There's There should be like UN tribunals and stuff. I think technically it is a war crime. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, Osvaldo. I had a great time talking with you about this comic book, and I always have a great time talking with you. Is there anything you'd like to promote? Well, I'll just say the same things I said last time, which is if you visit themiddlespaces.com, you'll see my site that's dedicated to public-facing scholarly discourse on comics and popular music and a few other things. We sometimes touch on movies and uh, TV shows. Or Notes from Comics Collecting, which is uh, my Tumblr dedicated to my comics collecting with photos of various examples from my collection. Not all, not all that different from your videos that you do for Patreon supporters. And um, that's, I think that's about it. Uh, I've loved doing both of these episodes and I'm so uh, grateful that you were flexible about the second time around when something came up. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been really great. Likewise, it's I've had a wonderful time talking with you, and I would absolutely second your recommendation that people visit the middle spaces and your notes from comic collecting. They're both tremendously interesting to view. And yeah, uh, just poke around on either one of those and you will find 
many worthwhile ways to occupy yourself. I'm about to start on um, post-Gerber Howard the Duck. Oh, wow. The Bill Mantlo issues or... Uh, well, there's a Marv Wolfman issue, and then there's one other issue, and then Bill Mantlo takes over. Wow. I'm certainly curious to read those. I'm having to keep myself from reading or rereading those until they're issues that we cover on What the Duck, because I don't just want to parrot your smart words and pretend that they're mine, which I think would subconsciously end up happening. But when I do get around to reading all of the WAS, which I do pretty much immediately after Lisa and I finish recording, I'm always really interested by what I read there. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. As this is the future, that is how we can be reached electronically. If you are looking for a more old school way to get into touch with us, we do have a post office box that's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. We are all up on pretty much every form of social media you would expect us to be on. Been kind of laying low on the social media posts lately, giving uh, timelines a little bit of chance to have more important voices be heard right now. <laughs> If you would like to support the show monetarily, we do have a Patreon page. If you donate there, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. The aforementioned podcast that I host with Lisa about Howard the Duck issues from the 70s. That's What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. You also get access to the videos that Osvaldo mentioned. I've been making a lot of them lately about classic comic books. I think I've been averaging about four or five of those a week lately. So you can see those there and there's a ton of other bonus material. This month, any proceeds from the Patreon page are going to support uh, national bail funds. And then Lisa and I are matching that donation amount to other uh, charities as well. So that's where your money's going if you do donate. And I certainly appreciate it if you do. If you do, you get access to all of that bonus material. But mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate what we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. If you would like to leave us a review on a place where reviews can be left, I, I certainly think that's a nice thing for you to do. I left them a review on Yelp. Oh, nice. Really? Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't know. Small businesses need Yelp reviews. It's very important. Yeah, see if you can figure out a way to do that. Or just leave us a review on somebody else's Yelp. Pay it the forward. French fries were terrible, but listen <laughs> to tighten up the defense. Well, yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Osvaldo. This was great. My pleasure. In summation, um, let's see. Do you have one? Um, in summation, I'm going to say, Hub, never summon me again. <laughs> No longer will I have anything to do with your kind. Once my researches are completed, I shall leave this podcast to its own foolish ways. Osvaldo, I was going to say the same one. That's why I wanted you to go first. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> and they knew it. Hulk is my role model in a lot of things. Yeah, I'm always trying to smash. <laughs> that could be taken two ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Ruled by the moon high up above. 
sign of the crab handle with love. I am the one you can rely on. I am the shoulder you can cry on. Moon child, moon child, moon.